Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Mr. David Weinberger. He is the author of Everyday Chaos, Technology, Complexity, and How We're Thriving in a New World of Possibility. Before we begin, I want to thank our episode sponsor, Northrop Grumman Corporation. Northrop Grumman provides full-spectrum superiority. Their innovative, multifunction, interoperable solutions ensure warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions no matter the environment or domain. Learn more at ngc.com ew. All right, I'm here with David Weinberger. He is the author of Everyday Chaos, Technology, Complexity, and How We're Thriving in a World of New Possibility. He has a longtime affiliation with Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. He is a thought leader on how the internet and technology is changing the way we do business and live our everyday lives. David, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ken. I, of course, want to focus on your book, Everyday Chaos. Uh, It was recommended to me earlier this year, and I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy and read it. And as I was reading it, there there were a lot of points of relevancy to our community, the electromagnetic spectrum operations community. So I wanted to have you on the show and just talk a little bit about the book. And so to begin, the book focuses on how technology through artificial intelligence and machine learning is not just changing how we think, but also opening up new possibilities, and this has profound implications across the board. So can you tell us a little bit about the book overall and why you wrote it? My background is as a long time ago, an academic philosopher uh, who (laughs) accidentally got involved with tech over 30 years ago, and and I've been writing about it since then. And the thing that particularly interests me, and I cannot tell you exactly why, is the effect that technology has on how we think about ourselves and our world. It just seems not coincidental that over the course of history, the nature of technology seems to have, in one way or another, shaped our self-understanding. Now we have two new technologies. We have the internet, and now we have machine learning artificial intelligence in the form of machine learning. And both of those became almost immediately fascinating to me, thinking about how our interactions with them may change our ideas about how we think about everything. So how did you go about and begin to unpack this issue, this topic? Your starting point is you look at how humans have traditionally thought about assumptions or had assumptions to predict activities or actions. But you talk about accidentally getting into technology. Where do you start that conversation? Well, I came into it in the early days of uh, the internet when the internet started getting popular because of the web. So early 90s. The thing that really struck me about the internet was that it is so unstructured. It is so chaotic in its structure. Everybody can link to anything else. You end up with this massive and massively valuable and massively dangerous and in many ways terrible as well 
environment in which people are making sense of the world by creating links to things that seem to matter to them. There was no central management for, for the web. There's nobody who has a business card that says manager worldwide web. And if there were, it would never have scaled. It only exists because it was unmanaged. And that's something new. It's by far the most complex thing that humans have built in our history. And it was done without plans, without strategy, without managers, without, in many ways, without money, a lot of hidden money in it, but, you know, people were contributing their labor all around the world. And that to me was fascinating, the way that it broke down the structures that we assumed we needed in order to build things successfully. And now it's turning around and influencing all those structures that it broke down to be created. Absolutely. Everything starts to look like a, like a net now. Uh, including knowledge, for that matter, which was also a very architectural and sort of structural thing in Western history. And now it's knowledge lives in webs of, of ideas among strangers. I mean, it's, it's a complete inversion of our ordinary Western idea of knowledge. 2,500 years of that just gone in a couple decades. And in our community, we talk a lot about environments being congested, contested, complex. And all of those kind of speak to our interpretation of that environment. But you kind of introduced this notion, at least in the book, of chaotic. And I think that that's very interesting because it takes a step beyond just what we perceive to be complex and this underlying reality that is almost betrays or goes beyond our ability to understand. And so this is challenging all of our assumptions and either showing the assumptions that we had are wrong or that they're insufficient. How have our prevailing assumptions been too narrow and how is this notion of a chaotic environment forcing us to change those assumptions? So on the internet, where we now have a full generation has grown up on the internet, the things that we that are most characteristic of it and that we in general most enjoy about it are much more clearly characterized in some terms of a chaotic system rather than a structured one. And I mean chaos here not in the sense in which there's chaos in the streets, which is Terrible. There's almost nothing good to say about chaos in the streets and that sort of chaos. But rather, I'm using the term closer to chaos theory, in which there are so many small pieces, so many interconnections among them, and a tiny change in one of them, this is the butterfly effect, a tiny change in one of them can result in a large-scale event that you can't even trace the route that that little butterfly landing on a flower, how that ended up causing a hurricane in, in Dallas or whatever the example is. Everything is connected to everything else and affects everything else all the time. And so we've liked that. It's gotten, the internet has gotten us used to living in chaos and liking, generally liking living in that sort of chaos. And then machine learning comes along. When I talk about AI, I mean machine learning, the particular, you know, because that's the dominant type these days. Machine learning comes along and it's able to take advantage of that overwhelming abundance of chaotic and deeply connected things. It enables us to make better predictions, to do lots of operations more quickly and the rest of it. And so we get a benefit from acknowledging and embracing at the technical level, at the technological level, the chaos that we've experienced in real life, in everyday real life on the internet. That's, I think that's a, this is a fundamental change. We have these little brains, a couple kilograms that want to understand 14 billion years of the history of the universe and everything else. And our way of doing it, obviously, is tremendously successful, which a big part of it has been to try to come up with generalizations in the form of laws, principles, and the like, that we can then apply to existing situations and explain them in some sense and often predict them. In some sense, what's really real is those stable 
principles that it just turns out we humans are capable of understanding. We apply them to the chaotic world and we do a good enough job that generally, you know, we're a very successful species, at least so far. <laughs> that may change. This has been a great, say, strategy for us to come up with these principles and generalizations. And I obviously, I hope I'm not going to dispute any of them. I sort of like science. You know, I'm not going to argue with Newton. But in the new world that this technology has introduced us to in an experiential way on the internet and in a theoretical way through machine learning, we are seeing that while there are generalizations, laws and principles, et cetera, and they're very important, every application of them is approximate. Literally every application of them. If you want to know how long it will take a penny to drop from the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which is, you know, Galileo's uh, famous experiment, we can do that really well because we know the relevant laws of gravitation and movement and the like. And if we know the mass of the coin and the distance, et cetera, we can apply the laws and come up with an answer that's good enough for us, for our purposes, whatever those are. But we also know, think about it for a moment, that in fact, that prediction is an approximation because it doesn't take into account everything from the turbulence in the air caused by the beating of the wings of a pigeon that's passing by, all the way up to the pull of distant stars and that comet over there that exerts a little bit. Of, now, we don't care about that because it doesn't affect the number that we come up with for some purpose. We're good enough for our purposes. But the truth is that the general principles and laws always are approximate. And in many ways, the stubborn reality is the interconnection of all these pieces, everything affecting everything all the time. And that's chaos, which is to, insofar as one can, to start thinking about your life over the past 25 years, at least some of which has been on the internet, and to pay attention to what's going on in machine learning and how machine learning models work. Because machine learning models gives us a way of thinking about the chaos that we've been living in. And a big part of that is the way in which models put together small signals, right? They're iterating on data. We purposely do not tell them anything at all about how we know that data is connected. So if it's health data from health records, we don't bother telling the system. We explicitly do not tell the system. How does this impact our ability to tolerate that approximation? In the past, when we had maybe a more narrow understanding of the world, we could tolerate a little bit more approximation in some of our predictions. So if you think about the weather, it was okay to think that it would be cloudy because there might be some clouds in there and that would be good enough. But now today, with machine learning and our ability to model and bring in a lot of different factors that we don't really understand, how has that changed our ability to tolerate approximation and, and how much closer are we trying to get to what is accurate prediction? Accuracy is not an objective thing. That is, what is sufficient accuracy is not objective. Our notion of what is accurate is tuned by our abilities to come up with results. We live within these, these assumed tolerances, and we generally don't complain about them because we don't have a, any alternative. They're, they're good enough. And that will continue. And we'll continue to apply laws and come up with these approximations in many cases. But it turns out that machine learning which does not rely upon laws or principles, stuff that we know is true, does not rely on that. It turns out that in many realms, it can produce more accuracy. And it, as you, you mentioned, the accuracy of weather reports has gone up tremendously in the past 10 years. 
how accurate and how far out we can predict. And to a large degree, that's because of machine learning. So now we expect to find out that it's going to rain within the next 17 minutes, as some of our apps accurately predict. But it also gives us a different picture of the world. In our old picture of the world, we thought that because the world is governed by principles and laws, et cetera, that we humans can understand, that the world is essentially pretty orderly. We know there are disruptions and things like that, but it's we've come to think the world is pretty orderly and it is knowable by us. And so that's been our strategy. And as they say, very, very successful. And we'll keep doing that, of course. At the same time, if we come to think that the ground truth about the world is that basically everything is like a car accident, say a multi-car pileup, where everything in the universe had to conspire to get those cars piled up on the highway. And we'll just make it non-fatal so the example isn't quite so distressing, okay? It's just cars sliding into each other on a snowy highway. If anything had changed about any of the participants in that sorry accident, if one of them had started out 10 seconds later from home or somebody had steered a one degree further to the left, et cetera, either wouldn't have been an accident or it would have been a different accident. All the laws apply. The laws of physics apply here, of course but they're not sufficient. The world is more like a car accident, hopefully a non-fatal one, because even when there is no, even when you're just driving down the road, everything had to conspire to get you. The entire universe had to. If that's what becomes our picture of the world, then we start thinking about things like strategy and risk and possibility differently. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for their continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had, had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, 
they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is in fact science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. But how do you keep that from paralyzing a society? Because now you can actually go back and look in today's world, using your analogy, you can go back and look what one particular driver did at one particular time to cause this. And so therefore, you can trap yourselves almost going down into a rabbit hole of causality that doesn't help you kind of grab a hold of the possibilities that this technology opens up. So can you talk a little bit about how you prevent yourselves from being paralyzed with the role that machine learning is playing in changing our world? Well, we already have, I think. I and mean, it's one of the lessons of the internet. Even though the internet came before the machine learning sort of beginning to understand how contingent and ultimately unpredictable the world is because everything's interrelated. Uh, we were living in a world on the internet where so much of what was interesting, exciting, and productive about the internet is that way because it reverses it, 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 it <laughs> our oldest strategy of strategies, a genuinely paleolithic strategy that we've had until now, where we address the future by trying to anticipate it and then preparing for it. And again, that generally works quite well, although it actually works shockingly badly. We just ignore the inevitable mispreparing, over-preparing, under-preparing. We just take that for granted. Nevertheless, on the internet, much of what's exciting has occurred because people have stopped trying to anticipate. They are engaging in unanticipation. And you see this all over, all over the internet. You see it in a relatively small area, still pretty big, of minimum viable products where company launches with the fewest features possible so they can learn from the reaction what users want. This is so different than sort of the Henry Ford model where you plan out the Model T and you do it so well that you don't change anything in it for 19 years and you sell 15 million of them. This is the opposite. Do as little as possible. Do as little anticipation as possible. You see this also in agile programming that can turn on a dime because we know we can't always know what's going to happen. We see this in open APIs like uh, Facebook has and so many other sites do, Slack does, Dropbox, which enable people outside of the company. Anybody who has a web browser has web access to add features, to integrate that app into a new workflow that couldn't have been anticipated, some new flavor of an app that addresses a niche market that the company itself would You see this in the iPhone, which succeeded basically nothing new in the iPhone except the App Store. And the App Store is a way of opening up this little slab of a computer so that it can become anything that anybody has figured out it could be, not just Apple. And a huge amount of the value of the iPhone comes from that type of 
holding back from anticipation. All the other makers are anticipating what users would want. And Apple did that, but also said, no, let's not just do that. Let's unanticipate. Game mods where users are allowed to alter how the game works and make maps open source, open access, ultimately interoperability itself, standardized protocols and the like, but also the ability to reuse big chunks of code. GitHub is, is an incredible resource for unanticipated reuse. I've built something, I've coded it up, it does what I want it to do, but there are pieces of it maybe you could use that I didn't anticipate. Providing full-spectrum superiority across all domains, that's defining possible. Giving warfighters the freedom to act across the spectrum, especially in highly contested battle spaces, can seem impossible. At Northrop Grumman, we've pushed the boundaries of possible across the spectrum for decades. Today, our cutting-edge, interoperable, multifunction technologies are a revolutionary leap in spectrum dominance. How revolutionary? Imagine detecting the precise location of an adversary long before they ever detect you. Or better yet, denying or degrading an adversary's system without them being able to do a thing about it. Your freedom to shape the spectrum is an overwhelming advantage in every domain. An advantage made possible by Northrop Grumman's unique, software-defined, open, safe, secure architecture solutions. It's all part of our commitment to ensure our warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions, no matter the environment. That's defining possible. Learn more at ngc.com ew. And this gets to a couple of the points in the book that I found most relevant to our community. Now, obviously, you know, you're, you're not an electromagnetic spectrum operations expert, and you didn't write the book with our community in mind. And you started to touch on some of these, and I, and I want you to continue to unpack them. And this first idea is you mentioned this, this notion of open platforms, building resiliency and value into products, and moving unanticipation upstream. I was wondering if you can share some thoughts on, as you put, have an agile approach to the unpredictable. And can you unpack this notion of unanticipation more for our listeners? So there are a couple pieces to it. One is simply that you recognize that you are in such a complex environment. The internet is one, because everything's connected to everything. So is the world. The world is, in fact, more complex than the internet. The universe is still more more complex. So you recognize that you are in a complex world where we can make some predictions, of course, and we get better at it over time. And we make our plans and we get our inventory or we move our pieces on the board of life and so forth. Of course, we'll always, we'll always do that. But the way the world works is while it's sometimes predictable, especially in broad strokes, it is filled with unpredictable things. And you either bemoan that because bad things happen in an unpredictable way, or you both you know, worry about the bad things that happen, but you try to take advantage of the fact that everything is connected and thus there's unpredictability. But that means giving up on your attempt to, your insistence on understanding. Because part of predicting, part of anticipating is you do so based on an understanding of how the world works. In order to take advantage of the brute fact of the world, which is it, it escapes our predictions, we have to in some sense, and this is an overstatement, okay, but we have to, in some sense, give up on our insistence on understanding. We should understand everything we possibly can. But a case does have to be made, I think, for 
being comfortable not understanding things, especially when that understanding is limiting our possibilities. If you don't understand everything your market is going to want from your product or do with your market if you open it up, then you allow more possibilities in the world. If you insist on only staying within what we understand, which is a very comfortable zone to be in, right? And then you limit your possibilities. And this gets to the minimum viable product where you put out a product and then you scale that up based upon user feedback and development along the road. Absolutely. It also gets to all of the open standards. It gets to the internet itself, which was designed consciously, intentionally, not to be for any one thing on the grounds that you can't predict what this, you connect everybody together and you let them share data basically without barriers. You can't predict what people are going to do with it. And so you should not build this network so that it assumes that it's going to be used for sharing scientific papers and nothing else. And so that's a very profound and deep realization that the founders of the internet had. So represented as the end-to-end argument or net neutrality. You get more out of the network if you don't try to build into it everything that you think people are going to need. Because every time you do that, every time you optimize it for one thing, you are de-optimizing it for everything else. And that concept of optimization touches on a second point in the book, and that's this notion of interoperability. When we talk about interoperability or you know, we oftentimes talk about just one system being able to communicate or work with another system and we pursue an efficiency, but it's really about interoperability leading to optimization. And uh, can you discuss this concept, how interoperability leads to better optimization of a system and not just efficiency? So if you take interoperability as the ability to for two systems to share a a product, an output, or the set of standards and protocols that enable that, then the interoperability taken in its largest sense becomes the enabling of new possibilities. That's what it does. That's why it's there. Let something that is produced by A be used in a new way by B, and quite likely in a way that the makers of A did not anticipate. The internet has given us a very strong sense of interoperability. People are aware of it in a way that they weren't before, though they don't call it that, but, you know, because people will get annoyed when the specialized image format that they just use some, you know, image program for doesn't open up in another system. That's an outrage. And in some sense it is, you know, it's not a moral outrage, but it shouldn't be like that. Things should be interoperable. But taking it in its largest sense, I think of causality as a subset of interoperability. Causality is a pretty universal form of interoperability. It is quite predictable, at least for human intentions. We understand causality pretty well. Right? That's a big achievement for the species. With interoperability, you can create new ways that people, the things interact. Causality is set. It's determined by physics, apparently. In an interoperable network, you can create new ways in which two things interact. And that is, that's astounding. You create your own logic in sort of the programming sense for how one object of one system is going to affect another. The result is that in a truly interoperable system, you don't get just the efficiency of reuse, very important, but you get more than that. You get a system that is pretty well designed from the outset to enable more possibilities, to enable more things to happen and not sort of vague hallucinatory possibilities that maybe we could put wings on a horse or something. But these are real possibilities. Now the stuff that you're making in your graphic design system can be fed into a machine learning system that will learn to do something else with it, even though the makers of the graphic design system had no intention of supporting a machine learning system. 
you're creating more and more and more possibilities. And they are real possibilities, ones that humans can actually sit down and do with great efficiency often. And this notion of interoperability then requires you to have that proper mindset earlier on when you're developing the system versus once you put a product out there and say, okay, now we want it to be interoperable with another product or series of products. You have to start earlier in that process to have that mindset that we're going to make this interoperable so that we open up the possibilities for what we can do with it in coordination with other programs down the road. Yes. And in the commercial world, you have to make a decision, which is still sometimes a brave decision, that you will do better if you allow more unregulated use of its product, of its output, than by trying to hold on to that product by using laws protecting proprietary information, ideas, you know, IP. Sometimes, absolutely, you want to hold on to the IP. But there have been massive successes that are due to giving up on that sort of grip. I mean, iPhone is one clear example, but so is Google's open sourcing of TensorFlow, which is a library that makes machine learning much easier for people to use because a whole bunch of powerful functions have already been built from the ground up to be interoperable. And so that, that was absolutely in the designs. Whenever a new feature was added, the question was, okay, how do we make this easy to work with? And documentation and open APIs and libraries and all that stuff came along as part of the product, not as an afterthought. And as a result, TensorFlow has become, first of all, like, uh, there's a huge community of developers who add value to it. They it's open source, so they create new code for it. And there's a huge community of developers who use it as a free, open, reliable, library that makes their opens up possibilities for them, things they couldn't have done if they didn't have that library. And the same is true for so many other programming libraries as well. As a result, that's become a really important product, non-commercial product for Google and has enabled them to advance their machine learning efforts quite expeditiously. But, but this has also forced companies to change their risk equation, what, how much risk they are willing to accept and I think that this has profound implications when we talk innovation, whether it's in the defense sector or commercial sector, is how much risk are you willing to accept and how do you manage that risk as the, the product develops? So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the notion of risk is viewed in the development of technology. Huge, huge question. Um, and I don't know that there's a general answer to it. I mean, it's one thing if you're making a photo editing product and you want your, your photos to be viewable and usable elsewhere, that seems relatively low risk. It's another if you're doing CRISPR, you know, your gene editing, which could seemingly easily be turned to terrible, terrible uses. And yet you also want the world's scientists to be able to use this tech to further research and, and to further our health and our abilities. I don't know, I'm not in a position to say how the CRISPR community evaluates those risks. It's really hard. But it does drive risk down deeper into an organization because, you know, it's not just a matter of the upper echelons accepting risk. It's about making sure that that freedom to take risk and to manage that is down at the early levels as well. Yes, and often it means a struggle with management because management is risk-averse for reasons we all know. And especially in the commercial world, the rote answer is always no. If there's risk, the answer is no for 
fears that may not be, the risk balance may not be exactly in tune. It's very easy to say no. Companies have taken what would have been impossible risks in the past and given away sort of crown jewels of their core competency. And that's why I mentioned TensorFlow. I mean, Google is all about machine learning now and TensorFlow, that's uh, an important part of their own strategy. They had to make a decision. What are the risks? What are the real risks? Which ones are sort of fantastic risks? And what are the benefits taken in a very large sense? So there are immediate benefits to the company, perhaps, as well as drawbacks. And then there are longer scale, larger scale benefits and risks. One of the things I have found encouraging on the internet is an increased sense that this is a collaborative project, where the this is everything. We are in it together. And so it's selfish to hold on to stuff. Now, sometimes, obviously, it's too risky. You want to hold on to it. But just to default to, no, it's ours because we made it, is no, you have to think your way through that before you accept it, in my opinion. And yes, you're absolutely right. This has to be done at the beginning. This gets into implications for strategy and how it changes our idea of strategy and how we address the future. So in the book, you mentioned in the past, humans, if we don't know something, we really can't take advantage of it and it becomes invisible. Machine learning is teaching us this notion of not understanding actually becoming visible and it's changing strategy across the board. So I want to get your thoughts on how decision-making and strategy is changing across economy and society. So strategy turns out to be a relatively recent idea. I think everybody knows it goes back to an ancient Greek word for general, but the Greeks did not mean anything like it, like what we mean by it. In fact, Socrates was the first to distinguish tactics and strategy. And by tactics, he roughly meant something like logistics. But strategy, the term that he's sort of, you know, he's, gonna, he's really interested in, it's the quality of being tricky, of being a trickster. And his first example of this is it's like a musician who's improvising a new tune. It's sort of the opposite of what we mean by strategy. It's only in the 19th century that we started to hear the current sense of strategy, and in particular, uh, military strategy. And this comes on the heels of the Enlightenment and Newton, where we discovered there were a handful of laws we could apply. And by the 19th century, people were saying, well, maybe there's a handful of laws we can apply to warfare as well, recognizing it's the most chaotic of, of human endeavors. And sure enough, you start to get the, the great works of military strategy. But all of this depends upon having a view that underneath all of the chaos of war, and of everyday life for that matter, but all the chaos of war, there are principles at work. And we can know what those principles are. Much of this was expressed in Newtonian terms of physics. You need to have a sense that there is a, the set of knowable laws that we can apply, even if it's a sort of rough application in the case of warfare. It was only in the 1960s we started applying that to business and started talking about business strategies. That view of what counts are the knowable laws, and that's what has started to shift already. The lifetime of business strategy, I think, is really turning out to be short. It's measured in decades. And so much of the business thinking these days is reminding us that there are black swans that can drop in from nowhere and alter your business dramatically. No, you need to pay attention to the small signals because everything's connected to everything else. Everything affects everything else. If you want to Succeed, you have to look for the early signals, small things, not big strategic, small changes. And I, I would add to that that the only way I think to do that is to make everybody in the organization a sensor. Notice something, and often it will be just totally off the track. 
And then you need to give them a way of communicating because we make sense of things together. And that's how you sense a small signal. They're small signals. You need a human, almost always, you need a human being to notice them and then more human beings in a network communication system that's pretty open, that allows digressions. Which also adds to agility of an organization if you have that. Right. If you, if you have the small signals and the, the sense-making network where people can talk about things just because they're interesting, which means most of them are going to turn out to be digressions, that doesn't do anything if you have a strategy, a 10-year strategy, let's say, in business that's impervious to hearing little signals. It implies an agile, in some sense, an agile organization. So one more question. I want to shift gears and, and discuss a little bit about how all that we've been talking about impacts our ideas on ethics of machine learning. Previously, we left ethics to the upper echelons of decision-making, but with artificial intelligence and machine learning, ethics is being driven down more to the point of the algorithm. And this ties ethics more closely to early development and technology. What conversations should we be having as a society about the ethical implications of machine learning and how does this affect business decisions? So the most talked about ethical question for AI has been questions of fairness and particularly of bias because machine learning is working off of data and data reflects biases in the society. I mean, and so enormous care has to be taken. And that's hugely important, but I'm going to skip over it because I think there's another aspect to this, which is you're absolutely right that this pushes issues of ethics right to the beginning of the project. And it pushes it in some sense into the hands of developers. They need information for whom the project is being developed. Because machine learning is it's just a computer. It doesn't know anything about ethics. It doesn't know what we want. And so you, the person who has commissioned the machine learning model, you need to be able to tell the developers in incredibly precise terms what you want from it, including what you think would be fair. There are always going to be trade-offs. If you are designing a driverless car, then it can go fast or it can be energy efficient but it probably can't be both. It can save maximum lives or it can go as fast as it can, but probably not both. Dozens of these factors, each of which need to be traded off based on a human decision that is so precise that it makes us uncomfortable. These are not questions humans are well designed to handle. They're incredibly specific. They are about values about which we argue all the time and we do not have good ways of settling except through politics through democracy. And all of that's being pushed onto the poor designer who has to, is waiting to be told, okay, I can make this much more accurate in its predictions, but that means you're also going to have more false positives or false negatives. Which do you want? In that sense, I think machine learning is forcing us to confront head-on really difficult human moral questions in a way that we've not had to before, with that level of directness and precision. Personally, I think that's a big step forward for us as a species. But, but it's not an easy step forward. And you do have to set up a process that allows those conversations to happen and almost democratize that conversation so that a lot more people can be involved in that conversation and not just the upper echelon of decision makers. Yes. And so the general idea that I have found among machine learning folks is Exactly that. You need to address it. You need to bring in the people who are affected by your decisions, not just the people who are paying for the new driverless vehicle, but the parts of town that may be affected by very fast traffic going through them. And it's hard to do that. You need to represent, you need to be very careful with your data, you have to make sure that it's truly representative, uh, which is hard. 
of the people who are going to be affected by it. And you should be as transparent as you possibly can be about what it's being optimized for. Otherwise, you are very likely going to go really wrong and have way more unintended consequences than you want. There's always going to be unintended, con- but you're going to have some direct and really painful for other people and thus for you, unintended consequences. You need outside voices right from the beginning. Well, thank you, David, for joining me. This is a great discussion. I wish we had more time and hopefully maybe at some point we'll be able to have you back or uh, continue the conversation in a different forum. But I do want to thank you for your time this afternoon and appreciate you joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I would, anytime you want to talk, I appreciate the questions, Ken. Sounds great. All right, thank you. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, Mr. David Weinberger. I also want to thank our episode sponsor, Northrop Grumman Corporation. Northrop Grumman's multifunction interoperable solutions create full-spectrum superiority for our warfighters across all domains. Learn more at ngc.com slash EW. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs.